what we're going to talk about this morning is um, in some ways smaller than the theme of that film. The, the character, the victim, the, the tragedian, um, the concept of allowing misery to hold joy ransom um, at its root there's a place where it touches all of our lives. And although what we're seeing there is a, a full-blown, um, you know, completely blossomed and fruited reality, the root, the root is always the same. And so as we look at our final hard saying of Jesus this morning, um, we're going to pull one right out of the Sermon on the Mount. This one's found in Matthew chapter 6 verses 14 and 15. So if you have a Bible, please open there. Um, if you're in need of a Bible this morning, there's one stuck in the back of a pew nearby you that you're welcome to open up and use. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Um, if you need help, the index in the front of your Bible will help you find it. Our verses here are at an interesting place in the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever take the time to study the entirety of this sermon that Jesus gives that goes through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's surprisingly well structured. It has an introduction. He chooses a couple of main points that he unpacks. It has a conclusion. Um, and what's intriguing is he's in the middle, uh, in the middle of a point in chapter 6 about acts of worship or acts of devotion. And so after laying out the principle, he gives us three realms uh, where that principle applies. He speaks of fasting, he speaks of giving, giving tithes, and he also speaks of prayer. But while he's dealing with prayer, he takes a moment to push deeper and to do an aside. If, if you lay out the structure of this passage on paper, this section about um, not doing our acts of devotion to be seen by others, um, it's exactly the same with just a change of topic. He repeats himself. The structure is exactly the same, except for this section where he takes an aside. He takes a rabbit trail specifically to lay out a way or a model of prayer, what we today call the Lord's Prayer. And even there, he takes one last aside and gives us a final amendment to his amendment here in verses 14 and 15. If anything can be said about that reality why he would feel the need to sidestep and then sidestep again, it's because this is an important thing that he wants to say. And so he takes the time to say it, um, even outside of the thoughtful structure of this sermon. Um, let's read it together and then we'll pray. He says here at the end of the Lord's Prayer, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, you've been so gracious with us for the last few weeks to help us press in deeply to the difficult sayings of Jesus, to come to an understanding and the full weight of reality of the seriousness of these things, and then also to see the goodness and the beauty beneath them as well. 
I pray that by your spirit you would do the same thing this morning. And I pray as well, Lord, for all of us, uh, Christian and non, uh, part of this church or another church, for all of us this morning, I pray that you would give us sensitive hearts, that we would recognize um, this thing called unforgiveness in our own hearts, uh, and that we would recognize the seriousness of it and that it would be dealt with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said here, he makes this as an amendment to the Lord's Prayer. That's why it begins in verse 14 with the word for, right? He, he's making an explanation. And of course, what he's commenting on is in the middle there of the prayer in verse 12 when it says, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And so there's a prayer for forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer, in this model prayer he taught his disciples. And here there's a condition. Forgive us in the same way or forgive us while we also forgive those who have sinned against us. And then he gives this explanation once again in verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, one of the challenges of focusing on any given single saying of Jesus at a time is that he speaks with such strength and authority it sounds like the one condition. You know what I mean? We can read this and it looks like all sins will be forgiven except unforgiveness. It sounds like the only people who will be forgiven by God are the forgiving people. It seems like there's only one line in the sand, one condition. But if you've been with us the last few weeks, we found this same type of handling in so many other places so that Jesus can speak extremely and say, unless you hate your mother and father, your brother and sister, yes, even your own self, you cannot be my disciple. He can say, unless you take up your cross and die daily, you cannot be my disciple. So we need to make careful handling of this verse this morning and realize that he's not making the one condition. Unforgiveness is forgivable in the same way that all other sins that Jesus deals with, deals with are forgivable. And like all other sins, they must be abandoned. They must be repented of. However, the fact that he takes the time to say how important it is that we forgive other people shows how important it is to Jesus. There was a film a few years ago called Calvary, where Brendan Gleeson plays an Irish priest. Um, <clears throat> and it's, I, I don't want to explain the whole plot of the movie, but the core conversation, the, the central interpretive piece that pops onto the screen is a conversation he's having with his daughter. Although he's a Catholic priest, he came to the priesthood after his, after his wife passed away, and so he's got a full-grown daughter. And they're walking along the beach and he says to her, I think people spend too much time talking about sins and not enough time talking about virtues. And she says, which one is your number one? And he says, I think forgiveness has been severely underrated. And what I would like, you to, to, what I would like to impress on you this morning is, according to Jesus, he would agree with that sentiment. He might even think that it's a little understated. Here, he makes it the one issue at hand because it's that important of an issue. 
Let me read it again with its full weight and strength. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so there's two scenarios here, to forgive or not to forgive. And there are two consequences, to be forgiven or not to be forgiven, and they're related. Now, I think it's relatively easy to see why this is a hard saying. In fact, I think we could lay out mounting evidence of the difficulties to be overcome in this. The yabats and the what-ifs and all of the things that would come to mind, all of the places where this seems like too much or too far or too important. But before we really press into it, we should probably do some defining our terms. So first and foremost, what is forgiveness? Now, forgiveness begins with the unwillingness or the laying down the right of responding or reacting to a sin against you. And I mean that specifically in a couple of ways. You lay down the right to be judge, jury, and executioner of that sin. You you lay down the right to remember and rehearse uh, that sin. You effectively step out of the chair of judge. You recognize that you are not God and you're not going to make people pay for what they've done against you. In other words, when people render unto you evil, you respond to them with good, right? That's a major ethic in in Jesus's teaching. Now, that, that's merely the root of forgiveness. It's, the root of forgiveness is always this vertical transaction. It's vertical here. It's a willingness to forgive. It's a laying aside of the offense against you. And even here, in the Lord's Prayer, we see that, don't we? Forgive us our sins as we forgive our trespassers. This is a vertical God and you conversation before it's ever a horizontal transaction. But the reality is this route will always lead to the fruit of pursuing reconciliation. The difference there is there's a part of reconciliation that you can't do, right? And the Bible makes clear that the relationship can't be restored unless there's repentance and confession and the need for forgiveness. This doesn't mean, though, that you just vertically say, well, I'm willing to forgive them if they'll only come to me and wait, Jesus makes very clear that pursuing forgiveness means that when someone sins against you, you go to them and you explain your fault to them. Not to call them out, not to make them feel badly, not to make them pay or to show how terrible of a person they are, but so that that hindrance and relationship can be removed and the relationship can be restored. Now this is merely an aside, but I promise you this. If you don't first deal with the sin rooted in your heart, If you don't first seek to forgive that person, if you don't first carry out that vertical transaction, you will never rightly carry out the horizontal one. You will go as the king of your own kingdom and say, you have broken my laws and now you will suffer my wrath. And so part of what forgiveness means here is dealing with our sinful reaction to people's sin against us, okay? But at its root, at its fullness, it means I am not going to pay out the consequences. I am not going to react to this sin in what I think it deserves. I am not going to continue to talk about and rehearse and make this part of my identity. Okay. Now, 
it may seem like saying that it'd be easy to answer then, okay, what is unforgiveness? But the problem with a word like unforgiveness is it sounds completely neutral. It sounds empty. It sounds like not doing something, right? Either you forgive or you don't. But in actuality, unforgiveness always manifests in reality, in real things. It does something. Unforgiveness looks like something. It behaves a certain way, okay? And the Bible classifies that into two basic categories. The first is vengeance. And the Bible makes very clear, once again, that we're not to repay evil for evil. And so vengeance is unforgiveness because it takes that act sees it as a laying down of the gauntlet, a declaration of war, and then goes to the battlefield. The problem is, often in our lives, we don't recognize how many forms that vengeance can take. So, for example, we begin to share how that person has hurt us with everyone else around us, and we make them pay directly from the account of their reputation right? That's vengeance. We seek, whether quietly uh, or in the sidelines, to impact the outcome of their life in some way. it's, It's almost like a give and take scenario, but it plays out in a lot of ways. This is what the Bible calls vengeance, and God is very clear. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You instead focus on doing good and blessing those who do evil to you. And so unforgiveness looks like revenge, looks like trying to balance the scales, looks like trying to get them to pay for what they've done. The other thing that it looks like is bitterness. And bitterness is not so much when you take the weight or the cost of that sin and try and put it back on their shoulders. In fact, let me use that as an illustration because it's a helpful one. The, The phrase that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount here for sin is debt right? Forgive us our debts. That is reality. When somebody sins against you, verbally, uh, abusively, it doesn't really matter where the scale is, it's a cost, okay? And effectively what forgiveness is, is being willing to bear that cost as opposed to doing one of two things. One is putting it back on their shoulders, right? Seeking a direct and consequential transaction to balance the accounts. You may have noticed in the film that the idea of love that's presented on earth is a love of need or a love of exchange, right? The idea is that I, uh, in fact, it came up in the poem that Gus read at the beginning of the service, I give you something and you give me something, It's a balancing of the books, and uh, the victim expresses it when he points to the film. He says, the only reason we chose her film is so that she would notice, right? So that I'd get a score on the board. In the same way, unforgiveness is vengeance in the fact that it tries to balance the bank account of that relationship. To say, you took out money from my account, so now I'm going to take it out from yours. But there is another way that we deal wrongfully with that debt, and that's that we begin to take it and internalize it, and nurse it, and identify with it, and it's it's called bitterness, okay? And it's relatively easy to tell if you're bitter. Have you ever noticed the fact that the conversations you remember the most are the worst ones, right? The ones that hurt the most? Like, it may be possible that there was that occasion where your boss in front of all of your coworkers said something incredibly nice, 
And you might remember that, but really what you remember is the feeling. But if I turn it around and somebody publicly shamed you, you remember every living detail. Why? What's the difference? Is it just that as human beings we're pessimistic? No, it's because of the replay. It's because we go over it and over it and over it in our minds. And so it's, it keeps, it maintains its vividness, right? It's familiar to us because we were thinking about it yesterday and the day before and the day before that. The reality is that bitterness may never manifest in vengeance. It may never leave your mind or in your heart, but when you contain, when you hold on to sin like that, it will do damage. It'll just do it eternally. I actually think that's implied by the word bitterness itself, is it not? Bitterness makes you bitter. It's something in you that starts to turn everything about you. And the reality and the problem with bitterness is, is twofold, okay? Ultimately, one, it doesn't matter if you ever get the chance to act. Jesus always roots the reality of sin and the reality of hatred in the heart. You don't have to have the opportunity to make someone feel your wrath if you wish horrible things for them. It's just as bad in Jesus' mind as if you act on those. It's still problematic, and to some degree, it's even worse. This is how George MacDonald says, says it. He says, he says that the act of unforgiveness is much worse than the act of murder. Because oftentimes, the act of murder is the act of a moment, where unforgiveness is the continuous choice of the heart. Right? It's premeditated. And it's constantly thought upon. And you dream about negative consequences laying out on their life. Our culture understands what unforgiveness, what vengeance, what bitterness does. It's in all of our literature. Right? There is always that story of the hero who can't let it go. Who can't, can't deal with injustice. And so he becomes the vengeance hero. Right? And he's the one who's going to set things right. And God says, that's not allowed. But there's also this reality of bitterness that our culture understands. It's why the story of Ruth makes so much sense to us. Do you remember in Ruth, there's a woman named Naomi? And Naomi loses both of her sons, and therefore all of her descendants. And so when she comes back to Israel, she says, change my name to Mara, which means bitterness. Because God has taken everything from me. It's become her identity. It's how she wants to be recognized. To, to a degree, by changing her name there, she's forcing everybody to see her through the lens of the horrible things that's happened to her. She's playing the victim. Now, that reality doesn't remove the difficulties of life at all. But what I'm saying here is the difference between forgiveness and unforgiveness, the difference between bitterness and not bitterness, is the difference between how a pearl is made and how something rots from the inside. Okay? When, when an oyster has some sort of irritant in its mouth, it tongues with this, saliv you know, this salivic fluid over it and over again to try and make it not so irritating. And it is that solution that becomes the pearl. Okay? That's what forgiveness is. And I would say the Bible even recognizes that there's a sense where it needs to be a once and for all decision to forgive, but it very rarely ends that way, does it? Right? You say, I'm willing to forgive, I'm going to forgive, I'm not going to do that, and then the replay kicks in almost immediately. Or maybe days later, or you feel like you've forgiven it, and then you find the same resentment in your heart when something similar happens. And it's building up, and the account is growing longer, and the debt is deepening. 
The reality is, if the oyster didn't have this solution that makes the pearl, that gradient, you know, that little piece of sand would just eat right through its body. And that's what bitterness does. The last thing about bitterness that I want to point out, the reason why it's wrong is because ultimately, finally and completely, completely holding on to sin makes it God's fault. It doesn't matter who sinned against you. If you make it the defining characteristic of your life, if you make it the thing that you always meditate on, eventually you will recognize that it's God's fault. Because he allowed this to happen to you. Because he allowed this person into your life. Because he made this person. And so eventually, always, bitterness will become, God, why why me? Now, there's another angle I want to look at this because I want us to get the seriousness of unforgiveness. And so let's do this a little bit differently. Let's just ask the question, why don't we forgive? And the reason is awful. Paul Tripp lays out five reasons in his book on marriage, which is called What Did You Expect? It's, it's one of my favorites. I've read through it with couples for pre-marriage counseling. Isn't that a great title for a pre-marriage book? Uh, it, but I like to deal with this stuff up front. But it's great. One of the things I love about this book is it's the first Christian marriage book I've ever read that takes time to talk about confession and forgiveness. Uh, And in his chapter on forgiveness, he gives five reasons we don't forgive, and I'll paraphrase them for you this morning. One is because debt is power, okay? The reality is when somebody has sinned against us, we now have a trump card in ongoing things, and so we can use their guilt to get our way, right? And so something's going on, and we go, yeah, but... I want this, and don't forget about what you did to me last week. Don't you think that, right? And so debt is power. We hold on to when people have offended us in the same way that a lender does when somebody's in his back pocket, right? Now he has influence in his life, and we are just as capable as the horrible absentee landlord of manipulation through debt, through guilt. Another thing we do is we utilize that in our own self-righteousness. We use it as evidence that we're a better person than they are. And even if we never tell them so, we massage our own egos that we're not the people who would do those types of things or that we're the most loving person in this relationship or that comparatively, I'm a better person. And the Bible makes very clear that that is a trap. But it's also dangerous. That's true of most traps. But I'm not just saying here it's a dead end. I'm saying that when you pursue and entertain those thoughts, you suddenly start to deal fast and loose with your own sins because they don't measure up to the sin against you. And so now you have room and margins, and that's another thing that happens with sin like this. You start to feel entitled. So the next thing you do with unforgiveness, the reason why you don't forgive is because it enables you to justify your own behavior. So not only do you manipulate their behavior with their guilt, but instead you justify and you say, well, I've put up with this treatment for years, so I deserve, and you start to do things that you know are inappropriate. You start to be selfish in the relationship because you deserve it because they've always been so selfish and somebody's got to look after number one. All of these things stem from unforgiveness. Another one is it becomes a weapon. Right? So the next time they hurt you, you pull out their old sins and you slap them across the face with it. Right? 
they cause you pain, and so you remind them of the pain they've caused you to cause them pain. And then the final one, which underlies all of these, and we've already touched on, is we don't forgive people because it makes us God. It allows us to sit in the throne of judgment and to feel the power and authority, and that's the reason why we never stop being satisfied in vengeance novels. I just finished The Count of Monte Cristo, and it's, it's exhilarating when everything comes together, right? When this man who, because of the unjust decisions of a few people, has spent 14 years in prison and almost was guaranteed death unless, in his, his mind, providence had interceded, right? But he takes the rest of his life. He devotes all of his wealth and riches to making these people pay. He spends the next 35 years with a single agenda. Are we really comfortable with saying, in the big scheme of things, that is the life? But why do we continuously go back to those stories of vengeance? It's because we feel the injustice of life, not just in the big ticket of countries with dictators and politics that don't go our way and criminals who get off scot-free, but also in our own personal life with co-workers who never get what they deserve and with parents who never change and with all of these things and eventually we find ourselves stepping into the courtroom and instead of trying to take the witness stand like we see in the Psalms, vindicate me, O God, bring justice here. Instead of being in that place of testimony, we say, you know what, God, if you'd step down, I'll take the case from here. And we stack the case against them and we throw away the key And we carry out the full sentence in in our imaginations or actually in life. That is unforgiveness. The beauty of Christianity, what Brendan Gleeson's character in Calvary is trying to bring out with forgiveness being severely underrated, is that we have a means to maintain relationship. We may be at a time in the history of the world that is worse at relationship than any other time. This may just be the standard uh, pessimism of what you know versus what you don't know. It might just be a grass is always greener scenario. But have you noticed how easy it is to walk away from relationships in the modern world? Have you noticed how easy it is to look behind you and see the trail of dead relationships and be very swift even though the line is very long and the common denominator in all those relationships is you to say, yeah, each one of them was a terrible person. They did this and this to me, right? We, <coughs> we have found it's much easier to move than restore. We found it's much easier to forget and ignore than engage and seek reconciliation. The reality is we have no means for forgiveness in our culture, but as Christians, we have a tremendously powerful resource, a reason, if you will, to forgive, and it's a couple of things. First is the fact that we really believe that God is just and that justice will be done. The Bible says, yes, life is full of injustice, and it's one of the great struggles even of the Christian life. The psalmist says, when I looked at the lives of the wicked, I almost stumbled. In other words, I almost walked away entirely. I almost decided that God was not real. He said, because they, they have great lives, and they enjoy everything, and they never seem to get what they deserve. And even when they do finally die, they die surrounded by their family, quietly in their sleep. He says, but then I went to the temple, and I remembered the 
that's not the end of the story. That justice will be done. The reality is the glory, the glorious reason that we don't need to bring about vengeance is because there is a God of the universe and that God is all-powerful and that God is just. And so we don't have to worry about balancing the scales before we die or devoting our entire lives to making sure that we are the finger of providence because the story doesn't end before death. We don't have to stand over them in their last moments and get what we finally deserve. But there's a deeper reason than that in Christianity. The reality is forgiveness really means something to Christians because it's possible. You see, really, this is the way the world handles those offenses. There's, there's really only two options. One, the debt is there, it can't be paid, and so you walk away. It ends the relationship. Or two, you ignore the fault of the sin. What is the normal exchange when somebody makes a mistake, when somebody hurts you in our culture? I'm sorry, it's okay. Is it really? Is it really okay? Can we really honestly say that we believe that these things aren't that big of a deal when clearly, often, they are? In fact, the Bible takes such a serious, sin, uh, serious view of sin and say, no, it's not okay. What you did will never be okay. And the reality is we all know there's plenty of sins that leave scars. And so an apology doesn't fix the consequence of that. That's not what forgiveness is about. Forgiveness is not about belittling the sin and saying, I, it doesn't really matter. It didn't really affect me. It doesn't actually hurt me. It's not actually evil. But those are the only two options left to the world that we know. So either you recognize the evil and end the relationship, or you ignore the evil and continue the relationship with eyes closed. But the Bible presents a God who has a solution for sin. A God who sent his son to bear the full weight and pay the full penalty of sin so that true forgiveness is possible and a real thing. A thing that justifies uh, the whole thing so that it says in Romans, God might be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. And so that reality of what Jesus has done answers the question, how can a loving and perfect God live with a sinful and flawed people? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because of his sacrifice. But it also answers the question, how can a sinful person live with another sinful person? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, because there's real forgiveness available there. And so the reality here comes down to the simple fact of love your neighbor. Seeking to forgive your neighbor is to restore not only this relationship, but this relationship on their behalf and remind them, hey, we have a solution for sin. Our relationship doesn't have to end here. This doesn't have to stand between you and God. And I come not on a self-representation, right? Not defending myself here to get a civil trial so that I can sue you for everything you're worth. But instead, I come as your defendant to point you to the cross and say, look, I'm an advocate for the kingdom. Be reconciled to God. I love you. And I want this relationship to continue. We have that as Christians. We know true forgiveness. With those things in mind, 
Now we're prepared to read this again and understand what Jesus is saying. He says once again, verse 14, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why is unforgiveness such a big deal? Because ultimately, it's misery trying to hold joy captive. Ultimately, in its full-born, full-fruited sense, what we say is we would like to bring hell into heaven if necessary. Right? It says, God, you may forgive them. I'm not ready to, and I want them to pay. And so we end up in a place like we saw in the film. Where ironically... What we want to do is chain them to their sins, and we're the one who's chained to our misery. Ironically, we're the ones that would rather be alone in hell than together in heaven. And the reality is, as, as is said in the, in the film we watched, as is said in C.S. Lewis, do we really believe that joy would always be held captive to sighs and frowns? Do we really believe that God would allow us to hold on to the chains of people and allow that to continue? But we still don't really get the answer here. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're familiar with Scripture, there's still something to ponder here because the Bible says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Meaning that it's not the forgiving character that we have that saves us ever and so in a sense it can't be the unforgiving character that damns us the bible says it's not our works that save us but god's gift through jesus christ that saves us so how can the converse be true that if we do not forgive we will not be forgiven and the reality is consistently the same that unforgiveness is at its smallest forgetfulness and at its largest ignorance here's what I mean when we are unwilling to forgive we forget our need for forgiveness we forget that we don't measure up either and not just in this relationship but in the whole scale of things we forget that the tremendous reality of our own sin cost Jesus Christ his life that he had to bear the full weight of that because the only option for us was the wages of sin is death. And so he took that, he took that debt upon himself. He paid it fully. And when we act so seriously, when we draw a line in the sand and say, I can forgive a lot of things, but not this one thing, ultimately it shows at the very least that we've forgotten. We've forgotten our own need for forgiveness. But what's even worse, and this is the reality that Jesus is pointing to here, we may actually believe there's something different between us and them that makes us acceptable before God, despite our shortcomings, despite our flaws. Yeah, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. And the reality is that Jesus only offers salvation to real sinners, not sinners with an asterisk, not sinners with fine print, not sinners with an explanation or an excuse. And when you take hold of the reality of your own sins and when you recognize the joy that you have in the statement, your sins are forgiven you. 
And when you fully feel the reality of that debt being removed, it will make you generous with debts against you. It will. It has to. The idea here is that forgiven people will forgive. And the reality, this is an ongoing struggle. Right? There are places in your life where you don't realize you're bitter and you've been bitter longer than you've been a Christian. There are places in your life where people in the future are going to sin against you and your first reaction, and maybe even for a few weeks, a few months, a few years, is going to be unforgiveness. But if you're aware of those places in your life, if you're aware of those relationships that are bleeding or already dead, if you're aware of those places where you're constantly on the replay and every action now is interpreted through the lens of this one conversation, and you do not deal with it, at best, you have forgotten your own sins and what God has done for you, and at worst, you don't actually understand what's at stake. But related to that, it's not just, oh, we've been forgiven, so we must forgive. It's, we've been forgiven, so we can forgive. What I'm trying to say is that this tremendous act of what God has done is life-changing. If you're bitter this morning, it can completely and fully and utterly be removed. Not by willpower, not by self-control, not by positive thinking, but by Jesus Christ. Unforgiveness can be forgiven, but you have to confess it. You have to ask to be forgiven for your unforgiveness. You have to ask to be forgiven for your vengeance and for your bitterness. You have to lay it on the table. You have to abandon it. You have to make a habit of seeking restoration in relationship. And like I said, this is actually a really beautiful thing because you'll be amazed how often, very quickly, you'll discover this was a relationship worth keeping. Not because they're not as bad as you thought they were. You'll never hear me say that. I promise you they're worse than you think they are in the same way that you're worse than you think you are, okay? But because... Because the goodness in human relationship is a glimpse of what we were created for. And although you'll never have it perfectly and fully and completely here, that doesn't mean you can't taste it now. And I'll tell you this, that as fun as it might be to be the tax collector or the creditor who shows up and knocks on the door and demands payment, it is so much more fun to call and say all debts are forgiven. It's such an incredible thing to extend to somebody a complete reversal, to reflect the God who is love in our own life and say, forgiveness is available. What Jesus is offering here is the only life. That's true. When he talks about salvation in the big, he means this is what real life is. All other options are death. But it's also the good life. And there's a reason he calls, it to it, calls us to it, and it's not just because it's right, it's because it's good. So I, do, I would encourage you this morning, lay your finger on your unforgiveness as God is laying his finger on it. Bring it before him. Do that vertical transaction of confessing your sinful reaction to other people's sin. 
And as, as there's possibility, it just as an aside, people don't even have to be alive for you to be bitter against them, right? They can die and they can even die at your hands and your bitterness will remain. But where there is still relationship, where there is still possibility, go, seek reconciliation. And if they won't be reconciled, that's fine. But always be open to it. Always be ready. And I hope none of you were plagued this morning by all of the what ifs, but, you know, but does that mean that I don't, you know, that I just ignorantly pretend that they're not capable of this type of thing? Does that mean that I pretend it never happened? No. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means first, once again, that you give up the right to make them pay, real or imaginary, that you give up the right to, to settle the debt, and two, that you seek to offer them the free restoration of relationship. Will that come with more conversations? Will it come with accountability? Will it come with them sinning against you in the future? All, yes. But, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. C.S. Lewis said, There is one person that I'm always gentle with, that I'm always gracious towards, that I'm always forgiving with, and that's myself. I thank you, Lord, that you are greater than that one person. You are greater than us in that we only bring need. We only bring sin. We only bring offenses against you, and you still not only willingly say all can be forgiven, but came and took the cost of those sins upon your own shoulders and paid the price of them. You pursued us with forgiveness. And I pray that the reality of that would take roots in our own hearts, that we would see the seriousness of our own sin and seek forgiveness, and that that forgiveness would overflow into the relationships of our life, that we would be able to let go and to invite in. I pray, God, that you'd even help us to recognize the places where we do need to have hard conversations and do as you pro told us to do, if someone sins against us, to go to them and tell them. Not go to everybody else and tell them about it, but go to them and tell them. Help us to recognize this morning that a lot of times we don't do that because we don't want to bear the cost of that conversation. And so our self-love keeps us from the loving act of seeking restoration. I pray that you would uproot every root of bitterness in the hearts of this church, and especially if there's relationships in this church that are broken, if there's places where we need to go to our brothers and sisters and ask forgiveness or offer it, I pray that it would be done and that we would experience the joy of reconciliation and the joy of the God who is love, the forgiving God, manifesting himself, enabling us and calling us to forgive. We ask this in your name. Amen.